From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digital. Sports Digital is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digital's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Groundsman. Joining me today, as always, my two fellow groundsmen, my two fellow slackers, uh, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. Uh, Roger, how are you, mate? I'm okay. I'm not bad at all. I had a little trip away for Easter uh, down to the south of Italy and um, a place called Matera, you know, the, the place that was in the James oh, Bond Oh, yeah, film. they put on the bong. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I'd love to go and see that. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really unique place. So we had a good time with the family and super relaxed. All good. Very nice. And Giles, we're back on dry land after your trip on the Reef Ghost this last week. Yeah, it's nice to be back um, on shore, a little shore leave for me, seeing you guys, so I can mix my metaphors and go from pirate to groundsman. I completely forget who I am anymore. It's sort of slight Jekyll and Hyde thing, but there we are. But all is good. You, it's look, nice. like, you look like Mr. Ben's granddad. <laughs> well, actually, you know that Mr. <laughs> Ben's uh, author died. Did you see that? I would have thought. Yeah. I would have thought about thirty years ago. No, he died. And do you know? Here's here's one. Not that anyone who's not from the UK will know. Do you know how many Mr. Ben shows they made? Oh no, it was like twenty or something. It was hardly any. Twelve. Twelve. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it wasn't oh, that wow. far off. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, I, and yet that was one of the most addictive children's television programs ever. But there we are, as if it, by well, magic, it, it, as it, if it, by it magic. Was, it was trusted. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hardly a topical reference for us there, audience. So we move on. We're on no. brand. We're on brand. There's but nothing like there's nothing like current affairs to keep us going, eh? Exactly right. Exactly right. Anyway, gents, we have a we have a terrific guest joining us shortly. A returning guest, um, which I'm going to let you introduce. To, sorry, who I'm going to let you introduce in a second, Roger. But before we get to that, um, plenty to chat about, gents. Um, Roger, what's caught your eye? In the world of sport? Um, well, you know, what's caught my eye, uh, the, the ongoing theme of the fangle that sport and politics and sponsorship gets itself into. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there was a bit of a kerfuffle uh, this week with the Belgian national team and their sponsor Carrefour that are saying they're going to boycott Qatar and Qatar said that the whole region would boycott Carrefour. And, you know, we talked about this a few months ago about how this could all escalate. And we're still a way, long way away from Qatar. And I, I do believe that this will get a lot, lot hotter. And I would I would link that to um, the politics, which I can understand, but I don't agree with, 
of Wimbledon uh, banning uh, the Belarus and the Russian tennis players. The argument seems to be that if they won it, it would be a wonderful photo op for for Putin. Um, I think that applies to a whole lot of athletes from countries that are maybe not the most democratic in the world. Uh, so I continue to be on my hobby horse about half-pregnant morality and sport getting in a fankle. Uh, I'm not sure what a fankle is. I'm not maybe like a cankle. I'm not sure, but um, either way, I think uh, I think this is a subject we have talked about for quite some time now. And I have to say, Roger, I, I completely agree with you. Um, the Wimbledon thing, I'm just astonished at that. To be honest with you, I think that is just absolutely a ridiculous policy to take. Um, Giles, I know this is a bone of contention for you as well. What are your thoughts on that? Well, no, I'm just interested, just playing devil's advocate for once, and not sitting on the fence for once, but. I agree in one sense, but I don't in as far as, well, sanctions aren't great for the common person either. So how do you, what's the difference? Well, well yeah, but hang on. The, the, the Wimbledon sanction was, unless you denounce Putin, we're not going to let you play. I mean, how can you force someone to take a political stance? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, as a, as a sports governing body who have been trying to keep politics out of sport, you're going to force someone to take a political stand or not let them compete. It's just, it's absurd. Frankly, what's what's next? You're either pro Biden or you can't play in the US Open. No, it's, fair, it's, it's ridiculous. A, it's a fair point, and then you'll almost certainly see the French Open allowing everybody into play because we have the whole COVID issue. It's kind of interesting when sports starts wading into geopolitics or whatever it may be. It can get very clumsy. It's, it's very interesting. In fact, sport at a to use a car for at a crossroads. It's kind of an interesting. Um, it's an interesting piece. I see what you did there. Do you see what I did there? I see what that, you did there. That was o, that was O level nice. French right there. Nicely played, nicely played. But it, you know, it's funny. This 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 um this morality thing is, uh, Rog. This is this is not politics. This is virtue signalling, pure and simple, right? No, I think they're in a. I I don't want to criticise everybody just by saying it's they're all wanting to get on the right side of history and virtue signalling. Sorry, who are you? What have you done with Roger Mitchell? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not because I, I, being the only one of the three of us that's actually been in these roles, um, all, all I can say is that once you start, you can't get out of this maze. And sadly, um, they all started many, many months ago, many years ago on other areas. And they're all knee-jerking now to make sure that um, whatever brand and sponsor thing they have is is on the right side and and frankly everybody uh, is in a fankle a fankle being a knot uh, everybody is in a knot that um is just going to get tighter and more complex like when you try and unlace your shoe and it doesn't come off the first time and you pull harder and harder and then it just becomes uh, a shoe that you have to throw away but where where is a fankle from is that a scottish word I believe so. Uh, it's in my vocabulary. I can't think anywhere else it came from. It's in mine now. <laughs> yes, exactly yeah. right. Um, so, Giles, what, uh, anything that's uh, been in your mind recently? Well, I was amazed. I, I, I remain continue amazed by the Tyson Fury story. I wonder if he will retire or not. But I do think that, I mean, I, I'm no boxer. I don't know much about boxing, but like we've all grown up with seeing some of the greats. He looks like the most unlikely hero. Um, he, he, he must be so damn strong because he, he seems to, to um, carry a bit more than the average heavyweight boxer. And yet reading the media, reading about from, from those who do know a bit about him, he's a very, very talented boxer. And I, I just sort of love it. He's sort of like anti, 
anti-gym bunny. He's just someone who can just stand up and smack people. And it's, it's an amazing story. So um, I, I, I'm, I, I've really enjoyed that one over the weekend, I have to say. I agree with that. Of course, his backstory is is amazing. And he did comment about, you know, him being, you, you think he was, he's, he's heavy now, Giles. You should have seen him when he was at his darkest moment of suicidal um, yeah. and serious suicidal, um, the darkness and depression. Um, he is an extraordinary boxer, um, very skilled. Um, the story is amazing. Although the thing that did catch my eye about it was, uh, one or two of the the reporters at the press conference that tried to challenge him on, you remember that guy we mentioned once before, Grant Kinnanen, the the Kinnanen, yeah, the Kinnanen gang, yeah, <laughs> yeah, who were for a period of time uh, very much involved in the promotion and the agency of boxing. I think we mentioned it at the time of the Scots lad Josh Taylor. Uh, forgive me yeah. if I've got his name wrong. Um, uh, and and now we saw this week that. Um, the UAE have been pressured into, I think, uh, freezing his assets and everybody's going after him. And again, it's another example of this, of my favourite subject, everything's okay until it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, Kenan and we were talking about six months ago, Grant, at least nobody blinked. All of a sudden, it's the thing you have to ask Tyson Fury at his press conference about, this for me is the world we live in. There was a, there was a I think, a panorama uh, expose of the Kinhan Gang, which which aired a few months ago, Rog. And that was kind of the, once that's up there, you can't not ask about it. It's, it's you know, unfortunately for these journalists, they don't have the option to not ask anymore. Um, you know, I, that, the way Tyson dealt with that, I thought was was funny, basically just saying, oh, it's got nothing to do with me, even though there's pictures of him with their name emblazoned on his shorts and his, his training gear and stuff. He just says, it's got nothing to do with me. Um, and, and just kind of repeats that, and in the end, it gets dropped. I mean, it's just that's the way these things work, right? But what, what Roger's saying, which is kind of interesting, is that almost everywhere in the world, everything is available. Information is everywhere, whether it's real, whether it's fake, whether it's legitimate news. And therefore, sport, like everything else, just gets completely fangled, I think, um, or fangled into the kind of mesh. So... Everything is very muddling. I would hate to be involved in sponsorship right now. I really genuinely would because... It's very tough. Because what on... I mean, there was a time I was invited rather um, hilariously in 2010 to the Tiger Woods mea culpa um, in in Florida when, when Tiger stood up in front of his mother and 16 chosen people to say sorry um, and I was invited, which was rather hilarious. I didn't go. Um, I didn't feel my own morality could uh, could, 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 could necessarily. <laughs> I didn't know if I was the right person. Who am I to judge? <laughs> Who am I to judge? Glass houses and discretion is the better part of valour. But that at the time, you remember Accenture pulled out of that sponsorship, but it hadn't really yeah. happened much before. And now there seems to be um, all kind of, um, heffalump traps to use an A.A. Milne expression that make it I mean I would be very nervous about going down that because your risk appetite's got to be pretty pretty big to, to get away with it so everywhere we go we're seeing it whether it's Qatar whether it's it's be, I mean there's been a whole lot of stories so yeah I'm, I'm much but at, the same, but at the same time Giles it seems it feels like the, the the way that this is being dealt with is the the kind of, I don't know what the opposite of a honeymoon period is, but the, the period when you, you pull out sponsoring someone to win their 
okay to sponsor again is becoming shorter and shorter and shorter, right? I mean, that's it used to be if you got caught in one of those things, you were persona non grata for years and years and years. Um, who's who, who wants to bet that as soon as Phil returns to the PGA Tour, he announces a few new sponsorship deals, right? I mean, it's just yeah, American Express pulled out of him, Accenture, was it Accenture Workday pulled out of sponsoring him, but, you know, and he's disappeared for a few months. He'll be back, and people's memories are shorter and shorter, unfortunately. So this um, this this kind of morality lasts for a while, and then it's back well, to we mentioned, money again. We mentioned that about Karim Benzema in this moment yeah. where nobody is bothered. There will be a moment where he will be asked in press conferences, you've just won the Ballon d'Or. Uh, how do you feel about the, being convicted for uh, blackmailing your ex-colleague? Uh, so all I'm all I'm questioning is why do people wake up to this so late? And when they do wake up, they go with a zeal that is almost as if they're trying to make up for the fact that they had their eyes closed for uh, for, for, for forever. Oh, I don't think years. it's that at all, Rog. I don't think it's making up for anything at all. I, I just think they go after it with a zeal because that's how they can get people to read their article now, right? It's by writing about the bad stuff. You know, whatever it is that gets you the eyeballs or gets you the clicks. That's the angle you take. If there's it no, bleeds, it there's no morality in it. Yeah, if there's no morality in it whatsoever. Um, no, sadly, I don't. I don't think that's the case. Not even close. The other thing I wanted to ask both of you about this week, also you, Grant, because you're you're right in the middle of it, is um, it's been a very bad week for streaming. Um, we saw CNN Plus um, close <laughs> close after a month and after three hundred million, I believe, uh, lost. Yeah, now, you know. People, I think our audience is a pretty mature audience and they'll know this to be true. The shit that goes down in big corporations, the money that is wasted and then people just kind of like brush it off. I know I work mainly in startups these days when every penny is a prisoner. You know, when I see something like that, that kind of error, you think, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? You know, Uh, but but let's not make it about CNN, um, CNN Plus, because we also had... Netflix, um, who, I mean, I think you and I, especially Grant, for a while have realised that the Netflix valuation story was, let's say, um, rather optimistic, um, whereas most of the industry didn't. Um, you know, I think a lot of people make a mistake of of confusing a good product and a good business with its associated valuation. You could ha- be a good business and have a dreadfully uh, 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 inappropriate valuation. And I think um, a lot of people are going to have that come to Jesus moment in the markets in the coming two or three months. Um, but, but, what, but what I would say mainly about this is that um, one of the issues about streaming businesses is um, is piracy. Um, coming back to Joseph's point about um the boxing, you know, my, my Twitter feed was awash with uh, pirate feeds. Um, just It's just so, so easy. Um, and, 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 you know, um, the, the subs business model refuses to grasp that. And I'm reminded of those two gentlemen in New York that I had the misfortune to listen to, both of whom are probably earning about a million bucks a year, tell me that, that piracy is leakage or breakage in a pub. And then I link that to what they did at CNN Plus. And I think, and this is my point this week, I think that the media sector is full of World War I generals with that skill set in a world of Stukas and Blitzkrieg. 
and it, they are going to all get found out if they aren't already getting found out. Once again, uh, an age-appropriate audience uh, analogy there, Roger. We could have used drones, but no. Let's let's stick with Stukas and Lipscreek, right? Let's let's bring it right up to date and the uh, the nineteen thirty. Well, World War One, World War Two. I can make that leap. <laughs> <laughs> but um, well, listen. I mean, this is tough for us to talk about. We have, we have our very own pirate on the team here, so we need to be careful what we say here. But um, yeah, it's interesting, Ross. That, that what this, I think, to me, all this signifies is just the fact that the cost of money is starting to matter again. And we've talked about this, you and I, previously, right? With interest rates going up, um, suddenly you look at the money that Netflix, for example, is burning through. You look at the money that CNN is burning through, and when you can't finance that essentially at zero. It starts to matter. You know, Netflix's share price fell thirty uh, percent in a day because they net lost subscribers. Right now, that was always going to happen. Of course, it was. Of course, they well, were. You and I know that. They... You and I know that, Grant. My point right. is that there's a generation of people that have got no concept of that. No, it's very, it's very true, Rog. But, but it, you know, the CNN thing was interesting, right? Because that is a project which ordinarily would have been given more time because to kill it after a month, someone's ego very high up in CNN is getting a battering from that, right? Someone made that decision. It was someone's pet project inside CNN on the C-suite and they killed it after a month. Why? In, 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 in I'd say normal times, in, in recent times, that would have been allowed to carry on for a bit longer than that um, to try and make a point, to try and dig the way out of it. But suddenly... Uh, you know, money is starting to have value again. And so you can't let these things bleed anymore. It's um, you, Your point is absolutely right, Roger. I think the streaming industry is in for a very, very rude awakening. And and that piracy aspect that you've talked about quite rightly for some time now is going to be a significant part of it. Charles? Well, I just think there's a branding issue as well. Why does every, every one of these media giants, they always want to use the word plus, and it seems to be this sort of ubiquitous extra channel. It feels to me very unimaginative, but who am I? I'm just... Well, a- I mean, look, you, you, they use it as a suffix. You use it as a prefix for your, uh, for your science, Charles. It's, t- it's two, two just different ways of using it, that's all. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get too obsessed with the plus. Charles, uh, 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 the three of us could be getting careful there. <laughs> Here, now listen, on a slightly lighter note, gents, before we welcome our guest... Um, I watched a fantastic four-part documentary this week about Magic Johnson. Now, I doubt either of you have seen it. Um, But uh, if there was one person on the face of this planet that I would love to interview, it's Magic Johnson. And not because he's in the argument of being the greatest basketball player of all time, um, but he's also an, an extraordinary businessman. If you get the chance to watch this documentary, you should absolutely do so. It walks through his incredible career. Um, it walks through the whole HIV story back in 1991. It walks through his his phenomenal achievements in business in the community. It's just a fantastic, fantastic documentary. I was looking forward to it, and I'm happy to say I cannot recommend it highly enough. He's, he's a remarkable man who's lived two incredible lives. And you know, at, it's funny because at the same time that this um, documentary, They Call Me Magic, is, is the Apple TV documentary, there's also an HBO show a dramatization of the rise of that showtime laker team of the early 1980s with magic johnson and kareem and, and that is called winning time um and they say it's a it's a fictionalized dramatization of it and it is absolutely again on a completely different tangent but brilliant uh, john c Riley playing jerry bus the guy they've got to play magic in this thing is 
extraordinary. Looks like he's got the same smile, he's got the same mannerisms. Uh, it's littered with familiar faces. So uh, if I can offer two recommendations to the listening audience. So would you say that is a, a top sports film in terms of dramatisation? I mean, does that go in the top five of, of greatest sports films in terms of in terms no, of? It's, no, it's fun. It's fun. It's okay. pure, pure fun. It's very well done. It's Adam McKay, the guy who did The Big Short, um, has done it. Um, it's really good fun. It's funny. The music's great. It's shot all in like grainy film footage. It's a really fun account of the Lakers Celtics dynasty wars during the eighties, but the Magic Johnston uh, Magic Johnson um, documentary is up there with the best sports documentaries I've ever seen. It's fantastic. Excellent. My little tip for the top. Uh, anyway, Rog, let's uh, let's talk about our returning guest, a, a pal of all of us. Yeah, um, Pat Nevin was the first ever guest on our, you know, entertained. I don't know how yes, long ago that was now, um, and I. I hesitate to go back and listen to that because um, <laughs> if, if you look if you look back at what you did a year ago and you're not embarrassed, you're not growing enough. So four years ago, I hesitate to think what or you you were already a little bit seasoned, but for for me it was it was new. I think Pat came uh, across fine. It was just you and me. That he came across that fine. Pat, Pat Nevin. Pat Nevin is um, from a background similar to myself, similar to a previous guest as well, Hugh Henry, and similar to another uh, previous guest, Jim Kerr. Um, uh, I put it under the um, people will understand what I mean here. I put it under the the Irish Catholic Glasgow upbringing, um, which has got a a whole load of commonality about it. Um, that 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 drew Pat and I to become friends when uh, I got to know him when he was the chief executive of Motherwell after he, he ended his playing career, a glorious play, playing career, most notably with Chelsea. Uh, club very much in the news just now. He also um, ran um, the PFA, the players, the players union, um, and he um, he wrote a book, uh, the first the first uh, volume of a book called The Accidental Footballer, which um, takes us through what Pat is, which is not really a footballer. It's everything else on the outside that's interesting, uh, from his upbringing, um, uh, the importance of his family. Uh, his values uh, going down to London as much for the music scene as he was for playing for Chelsea um, everything like that so I wanted to bring him on uh, to celebrate a little bit the first guest and then you know almost the first um, the first guest after us winning the award um, to just chat with him and chat about the book because I read it and I, and I listened to a lot of the podcasts he gave around the promotion of that and some of the stories very much resonate with me. Um, so from my own point of view today, any questions I've got will probably be along the lines of the the non-football stuff and Pat Nevin, the person. Um, but obviously there's a million things in there to ask around sport, not least of which, you know, where, where he sees Chelsea going now um, and where he sees uh, football and, and sport going in a world where it seems to be ever more dominated by uh, values that he would be very alien to, which is, you know, br brutal brutal ca capitalism at its worst. So uh, why don't we um, bring Pat in and just have a good old natter? Perfect. Let's do that. Patrick Nevin, great to have you again back on Are You Not Entertained? Our very first guest and dare I say, possibly our favourite guest. You have to say that. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. How are you, mate? I'm, I'm very good, very good. I'm just trying to make sure my video camera's on right. Um, been very busy, doing a lot of 
extremely different things since the last time I spoke to you. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun at the moment. Uh, football world's a bit mad, um, but then when is it not? I should forget football <laughs> world. The world's a bit mad. <laughs> I can say that. And uh, yeah, but yeah, some good times up just now. Funnily enough, uh, Scotland's actually got quite interesting as well for the first time in a wee while, you know, with a football. Uh, so that's been good, but uh, I'm still spending most of my time down south. Um, yeah. yeah, doing the England games, uh, doing games in England. Listen, listen. Um, in preparation for this, uh, I, I obviously read the book and um, listened to a lot of the podcasts and all the a lot of the reviews, and I, I know Grant and Giles did as well. Um, and that's where I want to kick off, Pat, because um, that's really what I want to talk a little bit about today. And in, in in the book, and and in and in you explaining the book. You talk so much about your parents, mm-hmm. um, your mother, um, who you call an angel on earth, uh, and your father, who uh, had a huge influence in you in a way that I think um, touches everybody that's a parent themselves. Um, I want to ask you a little bit, um, you know, on reflection now, when you say the world today is a mad place and there's a lot of, a lot of ugliness in our, uh, around, um, I, I think I'm right that both your parents aren't with us anymore. I think I'm right in that. Um, do you still think a little bit about what they would be saying to you um, when we've got all this crap going on just now? I think not necessarily even what um, parents and, and actually my in-laws as well, my, my wife's mum and dad are very important as well. Um, it's how they behaved um, and how they reacted to things. Uh, and I, I do think of it often, you know, that... Uh, just a couple of days, well, a few weeks ago, my daughter, who's now, you know, mid to late 20s, she's a doctor, and she was, what's happening in Ukraine? She goes, oh my God, what's going to happen? And having, you know, listened to parents and what they've all gone through and what they lived through, and, you know, we can go back to things like uh, the Cuban crisis and things like that. You know, you know, life has to go on in the midst of it all. You don't say, woe is me and the world stops. You know, you, you have to make the best of it. You have to say the right things and do the right things and make the right choices where you're going along. Um, and that's what we do find. We, you, I don't talk to my, my mum and dad or my parents-in-law, but I remember their attitudes towards things. And uh, sometimes you can only do the very best from your small area. And as everyone does that, be it in your private life, your public life or whatever, if you can do that, behave the right way, more people hopefully will do that and will be in a better place to live in. And, a lot of people like to make the big, big statements, and some of them are quite empty. And I think that's a thing I learned over the years. Yes, that, ain't that true? Uh, you know, there's a lot Pat, of... Uh, Go on. Yeah. Sorry, Pat, I didn't mean to, didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, it's, it's funny, it's so funny you say this, because I had a similar uh, conversation with my daughter, who's 30, you know, and same, same as you, caught up, you know, bewildered by the Russian thing, frightened, all the kind of things that... And, and, you know, the one thing I found that is different now, because I, I had the same thought as you. I think back to my parents or grandparents and, and you know, the kind, of, the kind of stoicism and, the, and this, this kind of, well, you know, as you say, the world goes on and we have to, you know, you have to carry on. You can't just curl in, up into a ball and hide. But the one thing that I found in my conversation with her as it, as it developed was, was a problem that I don't feel as though my parents ever had. And I haven't had a chance to talk to my dad about it. But that is this idea that I had to warn my daughter about the press and how the press works and just say, look, you know, and I said to her, look, in, in, the, in the months and weeks to come, you are going to see stories in the press that are very deliberately designed to make you feel a certain way about something. 
and it's going to come at you from both sides and you're going to get you know differing opinions and and, and it's remarkable what a what an influence the press has become um over something you know like the, the russia ukraine thing i said to my daughter on day one i said look you are going to see in the next few days stories about attacks on children and pregnant women and all all the things that are going to trigger you they're all going to happen in the in the coming days and weeks and literally the next day was was an attack on children's hospital the day after that was a maternity hospital um and it's 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 funny watching through her eyes as the press coverage comes through trying to explain to that generation look just be careful taking in everything you read and reacting to it well i mean it's harder for them because in some to some degree a they've not gone through a lot of these things before but they are being bombarded with uh, a variety of different medias you know be it mainstream be it you know yep. the newspapers be it more specifically online and stuff some weird stuff that's coming through as well and it's i think it is incredibly difficult to you know actually see you know for someone like myself who spent some time in russia you know they're this right at the start of this hate russia thing and i'm thinking well no and it was a great line I, I when i was in russia for the world cup and we had a fixer inverted commas so a girl who traveled around with us for the for the month and i remember saying to her i was winding her up the whole time saying things like look i know you're a spy you know, <laughs> there's no point in hiding it, right? <laughs> Which is the worst thing you can see to anyone who's looking out for you. Um, but I mean, I said to her, you do know, like, I know you can't speak about it much, but we're not over-impressed by the people that run your country and the way they run your country. And she went, hmm, and how do you feel about the people who run your country? <laughs> well, ah. There you go. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah, and if she said it to an American where the Donald was in at the time, and of course, what we have to understand is propaganda is the, is, has always been there. And it's there in, in absolute spades on every single side. And what you have to do as much as you possibly can is search through it for where you can see some levels of truth. And, you know, and, and most things in life aren't binary. Most things aren't black and white. And you have to understand where they come from. And one of the biggest things to try and understand is, which I do talk to my daughter, and sometimes I talk to my dad, was, listen. And listen to all sides. Just listen yeah. and get beyond and listen. And certainly, I haven't spent time. I and mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm disgusted with Putin and his cronies are doing. You know, I'm absolutely, absolutely disgusted by it. But then spending the time in Russia and trying to see through a normal Russian's eyes what they are seeing, and 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 being understanding of what they are seeing because what they are fed and because they have a different, different social uh, outlook from us. It's very interesting. Only this truly ignorant person thinks they know everything. Um, and that's it's, it's, it's more important now than it's ever been. Well, Pat, I couldn't agree more. We seem to have a, a generation of youngsters who who have no ears at all, but a very big mouth, and they want to always be on, on transmit rather than receive. But I'm interested, um, your views in these very turbulent times we live in, and we look back at our parents and our grandparents about how they might react, What's your view on the role of sport these days as a panacea, as, a, as an escape, as, a, as a something that makes the world seem a better place? Do you think it's more or less than it was 50 years ago? It's a brilliant question. Um, I don't think there's a simple answer to it because sport isn't one thing or the other with that. Yes, it's a fabulous panacea um, and it can be, but it can also get involved in sports washing. It can also be used for soft and high power. 
And you have to remember all of those things are all going together at the same time. Uh, but there certainly have been events and occasions where I've been over, you know, and I'm certainly since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, you know, I've been to a lot of games in England and particularly right at the start. The way sport reacted to it, and um, when I say sport, I mean fans. I mean sp- quite specifically fans. Um, culturally, has has been really quite moving a lot of the time. Um, whether you know there is a lot of virtue signalling in the middle of all that, which I think there is a hell of a lot of as well. I've, I've kind of been sort of lifted slightly by that, but also in the midst of it all, you know, we it's what we said at the start. You don't drop everything. You don't stop everything. You know, you have to go and live that life, and whether it be sport or the arts, you know, they will go on. For whatever we say, and however bad times are, they're still probably better than they've ever been at any point in history in terms of percentages of people dying, you know, in wars around the world. Because a war in Eritrea is the same as a war in, in Ukraine, you know, and we, we, a lot of people forget that because it's not in... We, amen. And, and that's what we well, forget. I think it's, what we forget. it's interesting what you say about fans, and I couldn't agree more, is that um, Ed Smith, former... Times correspondent, a great a great friend of mine. He talks about a lot about the history of sport and, and um, sports being used as a political football for a very very long time, and we all know that. But it is the reaction of fans is where you get that kind of pure sense of where a, a mores can exist within society. And I think that the Ukraine um, support, certainly in this country in the UK, was something was very moving that people were thinking deeply about it and. Um, it's just for me, it's a fascinating time is what is the role of sport? And actually, the role of sport for most people is to provide a, uh, some sort of comfort in, a, in a, what is always a turbulent world. Yeah, I do think it has worked sometimes, but you, you do know when or you feel it when you're being manipulated as well. And I go back to that time in Russia where I was there for a month <laughs> um, and working for a month for the BBC in Russia. You know, what we were told to expect. And it's a, it's a joyous thing, one of the things I'm writing about currently, and for some other stuff that I'm doing just now, is what we are taught to expect before we travel. And all of us here, the many people who are listening and watching will have travelled a lot. And you only find out and you only understand. And it's joyous if you go and travel to another country and don't shout at the locals in your loudest English voice and actually sit down and listen and see where they're coming from it is one of the great joys in life and one of the tortures of what was happening during COVID that we actually couldn't do that. And I, I learned so much in my time in Russia, but I also learned that there was absolute disgrace that should have been given in the first place because it was an, it was a scam. It was, it was almost as bad as Qatar, you know, and, but you know, that's the way it's been used over the years. And we always hark back to Hitler and the way He used um, the Olympics, but then that slightly backfired on him as well. So sport has always been used, but remember that, you know, that's them using sport. Sport actually is is of itself its own thing as well and should be allowed to be so when it it can. And that's that's been the tricky bit because the minute you start saying, okay, we're going to, you know, not allow certain groups to go. Remember there was at the, the Moscow Olympics where a lot of the countries didn't go, the Americans didn't go. Uh, you could basically make an argument for banning just any country from any Olympics. You know, it's where you draw. Well said. 
where you draw the line. Pat, um, I- I'm going to come back to this amazing book that I'm recommending to everybody. Um, and, and, you know, you and I have spoken many times, so I'm being a little bit selfish in this interview because I want to talk about some of the things in the book. Um, your mother was very religious. Um, I think your dad was as well. I'm not sure about that. Um, you, I don't think, um, I've followed that. So you, you've come from the same background I have. Um, um, you're, I think, one of the 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 nicest, most most principled people I've come across. Certainly in the world of sport, but probably in general. Um, you've had a couple of slings and arrows thrown at you, especially with, um, you know, uh, Simon. Um, what, what? How did the how did the change of coming from a very religious background of two really amazing people that walked the talk? Why didn't you just follow the same line? What gave you the the doubts that you weren't going to buy this completely? Well. What I bought and still buy is the morality. Um, so whether it be a Christianity, socialism, Sikhism, you know, Catholicism, it, it kind of doesn't matter. If there's a core um, morality that I agree to, I, I kind of think that's important. And I'm not, I'm one of these people who's very, you, you probably do know that. I'm not someone who puts anybody outside a box if, just so they, they don't agree with everything I say. I want to listen and I want to be inclusive in everything. Now, that be it that your religion or be that your sexuality, be that your colour, I don't care. I just don't care. It's purely down to the very simple humanity of, of people being good and good, being good to their fellow man and women. So all the other stuff that was around it, the kind of the bells and whistles, as it were, you know, of any ism, it kind of never really rocked my boat. <laughs> it's just actually a much more simple thing than that. Um, so we and we were very strong in one thing. My my mum was very strongly Catholic. My dad was, but you know, no, they were never shouting about it. But you know, they were quite devout people. But they didn't tell anyone else to do it. They just no. lived their own lives. They weren't preaching at anyone. They didn't feel as if they had to go and run your life. The best way that they could and always showed was being and doing the right thing. And that would be everything. And the concept of, you know, like the bigotry that survives in the rest of Scotland with the Celtic Ranger stuff, the idea of we would go as a Catholic family and go to Celtic Park and sing songs of hatred was unthinkable, which is completely unthinkable in our family. It didn't exist. So I didn't really go for that stuff. Can I say one last line before Giles has a word here? Um, I'm a bit jealous of them. I'm a wee bit jealous of anyone who's got that fabulous belief. There you go. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> I'd love to have it. Um, but you can't make yourself have it. Um, You'll get there in the end, even if you don't. <laughs> the gate's going to be open. Well, well, I just, I, I'm sort of listening fascinated here. I, the, the, the sense of morality and, and uh, you seem such a straight up guy. When you were a young man, and you came down south and you're playing for Chelsea. And I know that wasn't the Chelsea that is the global super force that Chelsea is now. But wow, you still play for Chelsea. And this will surprise you that, and it will surprise Roger and Grant this, but I watched you play because I lived about 
five roads away from Stamford Bridge. And so as a spotty 13-year-old with a pudding bowl haircut and big thick glasses, I used to come down to the shed end and was allowed to swear because I went to a posh school. I wasn't allowed to swear. And then I went to come to Chelsea to the shed end, sneak myself down and just yell and have a lovely time. So A, thank you, never had that chance to do so. But B, my question, willing me to get to the point, is were you aware of that responsibility that you had, that you, you know, that there were young kids who would be watching you as a professional footballer and that what you might say or do would have or could have a profound effect, that sense of morality, I guess, as a, as a professional sportsman? Yes, 100%. Um, a, a classic example was I was talking to um, another chap in the media who played, um, played for a long time and it's a very big name uh, currently, Robbie, uh, in, in the world of the media. And, and he'd said to me, what about this diving? Because I can't stand the concept of diving and cheating. And he'd said to me, oh, well, many games did you play? And I'd be 850 professional. <laughs> oh, so you never drive, did you? Uh, no, not once. And he was like a state of utter shock. Yeah. But how could you do that? I said, well, you wouldn't cross your mind. You would actually try and stay in your feet, you know. And that was for a number of reasons, because I liked the, that side of it, of see if you had to win through cheating. I'd rather not win. It's <laughs> an yeah. odd thing to say, yeah. but I'd rather not win. There was a classic example, and I, Roger, you will have read it in the book as well, where Sir, I was playing for Scotland against England at Wembley. And I twisted and turned Terry Butcher, and he caught me. And I could have went down, but I stayed on my feet. And I thought that was the right thing to do. Oh, no. Now there's a big, there's a big version of the moral maze that we. See, there you go. There's these lines we need to draw again. And I oh, love no. that concept of where in the moral maze do you have that? I mean, okay, so I can have that morality, but when did I get the keys to the morality of the entire nation? You're so, <laughs> so well said. We half pregnant is is impossible, and we live in a world of half pregnant. But in this one. Just go fucking down. Get the penalty. <laughs> <laughs> it's, exactly. it's Wembley. No, Pat, Pat, I'm with you. I'm with you. You stand your ground. I'm, I'm absolutely with you. Right. So, so where I stand in this massive mound of high morality, right? I, I would run and get a player, do him, and go in front of him and take a hit and go down. That's fine. I'm all right with that because I've been hit and I can't yeah. stay up. But I'd manufacture the hit. So now, before I get too earnest about this, you know, that <laughs> we've all got our different areas and different lines to do it. But I just, it's just where I was. So to go back to Giles's point, um, yeah, I did actually have, um, you know, moral thoughts a, a lot of the time. And I was quite earnest in certain situations. Uh, I used to drive uh, people mad sometimes. Roger will remember this. And it's in, I've just actually finished the second book, writing that. And it was an absolute joy doing it. But there was one time when uh, a friend of ours, John, John Boyle, who I was working for at Motherwell, and I kept on doing the moral thing all the time. And he was a lovely guy as well. And you know, But at heart, a businessman would push, come to shove, I think. And in utter exasperation, after four years, he just said, can you not give up the bloody St. Patrick moment thing for a moment? <laughs> <laughs> and I knew where he was coming from. I absolutely knew where he was coming so, from. But, so, yeah. Pat, if you played cricket, you would have been definitely someone who'd have walked. Walked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
I didn't mean a walk. So you'd I, never I, have I, made the Australian cricket team ever, ever, ever. I, I, it doesn't make me better or worse. It just we all have a, a certain sphere. I mean, another classic one. I'm, I was playing in a game um, for a mother wagon. This is after, you know, and uh, I get I went into the box against St. Johnson. Remember it really well. Twisted and turned, went by the player, but slipped and fell over. And I saw the referee turn it and pointing to the spot, give us a penalty. And I was like, no, no, I fell. And he kind of done this big arc and ran away and pretended he wasn't going to And I don't think he'd ever come across that before. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to paint a picture of this, but it's just how I was. It's how I was And I think up. that does come from your parents and that comes out in the book uh, very much. Something that I'm going to Roger, can I say one other thing which yeah. you might like, just in the midst of this, this also comes from Celtic Football Club. Because we were brought up in that at the time. Some of the people I worked you're, with, you're, there, on, you're on thin ice here, Pat. You're on no, thin ice. Celtic, <laughs> no, Celtic Football Club at the time had this concept where you played football, you played it stylishly, you played it in an attacking way. But more than that, you try to entertain where you are. Now I watch oh, the that's team. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the point. You know, all other bits of morality you can talk about and argue with, you know, where the money came from. And I'm well, I was things. thinking more about the Alan Brazil stuff. That's yeah. And I've, the boys, yeah. I, mean, I played for Society Boys Club to that side, but which is covered well in the book, as you, yeah. you'll know, and not ducked in any way whatsoever. But there was an, an ethic about the sport which was in Celtic Football Club at the time. And the ethic was do it the right way, play the right way. You don't want to win by the dark arts. You want to win by pure skill. And and there are teams like that. You know, funnily enough, there's, there's plenty of teams. like If you watch Burnley, I like Burnley. They're very nice. But you, they don't really care how they win. <laughs> they get the win. You know, I mean, they're not cheap, but they'll do it a certain way. But I know West Ham fans, and they only want to win stylishly. You know, there's, yeah. there's teams like Hibs are a bit like that. My team, if they have a 1 0 win and they play rubbish, everyone's walking around a grump. If they can beat 4 3 and they play well, I love it. It's just, it's, there are some teams that are like that. I have got a kind of, anyway, Celtic had this ethic of not only win, win stylishly, the right way, and within the rules. So there was a, a bit of that going in as well. I remember Davy Moyes and I were very good friends since the age of about 14. And, you know, he's one of those guys who had that as well. So there was a lot of things all piling into that. And I also think when you get really deep into this, um, if you've got enough money to get by, you have got the luxury of being able to be like this. That's so true. And not just about sport. Exactly. That is so true. Principles are very expensive. And if you've got... The amount of money to afford them, you you can afford to play that card, and many and that's, many others and that's, can't. And that's why I always admired my mum and dad so much because I didn't have much money, and they principles. still they still did it despite being poor. Um, yeah, it's interesting. We we talk about this morality, and we talk about players trying to game the ref and stuff. You know, but it's funny you can tell how how just part of the the, the DNA now, particularly in football, it is. You know, when you look at the Premier League now with VAR, you know, why are the players still surrounding the referee? They're going to look at the video cameras. They're going to get a ruling and it's over. But you, and yet you, you can't help, but the players trying to influence the decisions, whether they're falling on the floor, you know, there are, there are a thousand cameras watching everything you do on a football pitch. Now you are not going to be able to get away with anything. And yes, you can argue, Oh, it looked worse in slow motion or whatever it may be. But ultimately 
it, it, they can't help it. And I think that goes back to what you say, Pat, in, in how you're brought up in the game with a, with a certain way of doing things. I think that's gone now. I think to Roger's point, it is all about play to win now, no matter what. And you know, I, I, I like to think that um, that at Fulham, you know, we had a similar one of those teams where we'd rather play well and and lose one nil than we would kick people up in the air and, and win one nil. That always was the way down at the cottage. But I think I think that's very much an outlier these days. I think play to win. There's so much money in it now. You don't have a choice. I I think there's a logical way out of this. I really do, and I, I actually don't think it's particularly difficult. I've been, I was one of the people who wanted VAR all along because I would like the right decisions. But I also thought it was the one way you could finally get that sort of diving cheating out of the game. If they used VAR, VAR the way I would like it to be used and the way I think it should be used is, see if you check the VAR and you see, you see from the VAR that the player dived or tried to get another player or holds his face when nothing touched his face. Yeah. VAR calls you yellow card. Totally stops agree. it immediately. Just stops it immediately. And totally agree. They've not they've not got the bravery to do it. Bravery. Why? Is. Why is that? Why is that, Pat? Business. <laughs> it's a big old business out there, and football is far too scared to take on some of the the big businesses. I often use the word cheat um, when I'm doing commentaries for BBC or whoever I'm working for, and they say, "Oh, you can't say that," and I say, "Well." Okay, we look at the Oxford English Dictionary and I can tell you, I can use that word there because <laughs> that's what it is. So, but it's such an offensive word to people in the game, even when they clearly have. I don't care. Yeah. I'll still see it. It was many years ago, I was working, uh, I was doing some stuff for Match of the Day too. And I kept on bringing in ideas for them. A wee bit out there for some of them. And I said, why don't you have a cheat of the day? You've got goal of the week or goal of the month. Why don't you have a cheat? Because the guy who wins it twice will never do it again. And yeah. they oh, we couldn't do that. We couldn't do that. I said, why not? You, they're not going to sue you because you're going to be able to show if it's a very, very clear cheat. And, the you know, the one that we all remember, and we're of an age, I think we all, I think Rivaldo. we only need to say Rivaldo. Yeah, yeah, you're there. Yeah. <laughs> you're there before me. <laughs> and that's the one that angered us all so much. Yeah. You know that? That's not even slightly surprising now. That's actually not even commented on by a lot of people now. When a guy goes down and holds his face when someone's brushed past his chest and, and stuff like that. So I actually think in time VR could have an effect on that. It, this, that sort of diving and that sort of level of cheating and that sort of unfairness, which is what you've tried to get out of the game because all you want is the correct result, the correct decisions. That's the one that they've not been able to take, been brave enough to take on. Now, you won't catch them all, but I promise you, and I do promise you, See if a player thinks he's going to miss three games because he's caught cheating. He ain't going to cheat like that again. I've, not, also, no. I've, got a, I've got a view on this as well. And it goes back to the kind of zeitgeist piece that we've, we've been talking about, which is I think that if you think of great players in any sports and great moments and indeed where great investment comes from big sponsors and big media, what they do want is they want to see that sense of greatness that comes from great morality, from where people have done the right thing. Golf is awash with, you know, the putt that was given. You know, Nicholas is still revered as one of the greats for, for, for Ryder Cup glory, but for what he did. So there's a short-termism to that kind of, well, it's business, therefore we have to cheat our way to the top. I don't buy it. I think immortality comes from, um, from great morali- from morality, 
rather than anything else. So I'm I'm with you, but then I'm a I'm really old fashioned, and um, I was the worst footballer that ever. I was the worst footballer ever. I had two left feet and fell over all the time, so they made me play rugby instead. Don't call it old fashioned. I think that's I think that's a bad thing to say. Do people say old fashioned and then the discussion's finished? It shouldn't be. It's it's a period in time, and it's a position that people take in a, a certain period in time. And I don't think there's any reason to fight against that. And and I I give you, you know, you talk about you know these players who will say to you, oh, you've got to do it. The opposition are doing it against you, so I have to do it. I'm putting myself at a disadvantage. And then I say, don't see Messi diving. <laughs> Lionel Messi seems to stay in his feet, you know. And it's and so that but we have come back to an earlier discussion we have, which rounds it quite interestingly. Maradona would cheat. <laughs> you know, and find from his culture that's perfectly reasonable. Um, so we have to take cultures in, but I think you can be above a culture if you bring in rules within, and the rules are there within football and in most sports. Um, and I think the, we have an opportunity to do that. But, you know, I can get carried away. I'm, I'm worried. Roger's asked me a few questions about this book. It sounds hell of a earnest. There's a few laughs in it as well, isn't there? There's a few laughs and some amazing things. So I'm, go- I'm going to ditch my next question was and, 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 and change gear because one of the things, um, you know, speaking to you over the years, um, and I want, to, I want you to share this, um, which is in the book. Uh, you once said to me, and it really surprised me, Norman Whiteside, you said to me at one point, you said um, he maybe was the greatest footballer the British Isles ever produced um, and obviously was was robbed of that because of injury. Tell, tell people um, about Norman Whiteside and the specific example of the park and the rainy day. There's From only the one word, one word of that which was slightly wrong, which I said could have been, not was, could have been, because he had everything. He had absolutely everything as a player. He came to us at Everton. Uh, he, he was already gone. The, the knees had, had been damaged and... Um, in a, in a game that he was playing when he was 16 and they operated and they took his entire cartilage out, which is madness, which means you're only going to have six or seven years left, you know, and doing that when he was a kid. And he knew how brilliant he was. I once asked him how, you know, the one thing you haven't got is pace, Norman. And he said, I was gigsy quick before the operation. And you yeah. think, well, wait a minute, power, pace, vision, at 16, he was playing in the World Cup and looked perfectly one of the best players there. I played with him for two years, didn't see him give the ball away once in training or a game. Um, everyone you ask, it, like people like Brian Robson, Lee Strachan, they all say the same thing. Oh my God, what he could have been that he could have been. But it was cut short by these injuries and eventually when it was at Everton, he spent the first year, he scored, I think it was nearly 20 goals from midfield hobbling, <laughs> limping, because it was, it was an extraordinary thing to see. Eventually couldn't go on any longer. And I was, my brother and I were, we used to come back for afternoon training and couldn't get anyone in the team to train with us, but I got my brother-in-law to come along. We'd play long shots and it was pouring down with rain this day. And you can just imagine diving about in the mud. I've got Neville Southall's old gloves on and we were having the most brilliant time, long shots. If that thing, the perfect, we've all done it a perfect day when we were kids, right? Well, I got to keep on doing that until I was about 35, right? So, <laughs> so I was doing that this day. And then halfway through, it was about 19 all or something like that. I couldn't, I seen something move at the corner of my eye in the training ground. And underneath the tree was this Norman standing on his big coat all wrapped up, looking at us. And he's 26. 
and it's all gone and it's not his fault and he would have given anything anything to be doing what we were doing there and it was the most poignant painful moment because there was no words needed you knew that he had actually gone and understood that he could be one of the great players of his age it had been taken away from him and there he stood watching us Um, but he never complained he never moaned about it I meet him now and again now and you know he's upbeat he's a very charming he's intelligent people used to drink a lot and I always thought to myself I wonder if I'd have drank that much if I knew how much I'd lost it it was really painful to to go through that with Norman and it's lovely now and as I say he's a podiatrist now Um, I don't think he watches a lot of football I'd imagine it's still quite painful for him but it's a shame because it's a good analogy to a lot of people within you know the world but generally sport we have opinions about them before we meet them. Now, be you a pop star, be you a writer, be you anyone in television generally. We think we know what they're like. People who don't know Norman think he's this big, thuggish, hard-drinking man. Never, never heard him swear once in his life. Super intelligent guy. Um, brilliantly, brilliantly talented. And knows he could have been phenomenally talented. And that's why when I say it to people, oh, he was one of the, if not the best, that we would have produced from these shows, we give you a look as if you're an idiot. Because it's a shame because we never get to see the whole person unless we spend a lot of time with them. Magnificent. Um, so I was always happy to do that. With there was quite a few people in the book. To be honest, that in the book, there's quite a lot of people's stories I could have taken apart and talked about. But I just wanted to use the best ones, were best examples of them. There's another long involved story about uh, Morrissey from the Smiths, which is quite fun. And I spent an evening with him and another friend of mine, Vinny. But I had a lot of friends who were in the music business, but I just wanted the very best stories that gave a a really good picture of what it was like to live in this weird life that I was living in. So go on then. What's the story with Morrissey? Oh, Morrissey was just, uh, my friend Vinny, who I'd got to know through Factory Records, and uh, he said, do you want to go and see my friend, Stephen? I went, Stephen? I went, uh, well, Stephen Morrissey. That was Morrissey's name. That's Morrissey's real name. And I said, all right, we'll go around tomorrow night. And we went around and we had the most fabulous evening. I, honestly, I could spend the next 50 minutes. Is that most of it's in the book, but there is this brilliant moment because he's an unusual character. And politically, we wouldn't be on the same page these days. Oh, trust really? Me. <laughs> no, he's gone a long way. Uh, oh, but, wow. but he's an interest, an interesting character anyway. But one of the best lines of the night is I asked him to show us around his house. Now it's a real Glasgow thing. I don't know if you remember that, Roger. Like, show us around your new house kind of thing. And it's kind of <laughs> weird for some cultures, but for us it's normal. And he was going, Oh, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I said, like, Oh, come on, show us around your house. So he showed us around every room in the house, which each room had a story. One of the rooms just filled with original. Um, things like picture of Dorian Gray, you know, <laughs> absolutely. There you go, brilliant, <laughs> fantastic, fantastic stuff, right? But there was two brilliant rooms, right? I'll tell you very quickly about two of them. Right? One of them, he said, "Oh, you wouldn't be interested in that room." And I went, "The hell, I wouldn't be interested in that room." That's what I want to see now. And eventually, turned got him to show us, and it was the last thing I expected to be behind that locked door, which was a huge multi gym, <laughs> and he didn't see the type that you would get. Now you look up now and you can see he's a bit built in the wood. But the best line is the last room up the top of the, uh, the house. 
And we walked in this room and there was a beautiful baby grand piano sitting there. And my friend Vinny, who's a classically trained pianist and guitarist, in fact, my favourite guitarist, but he's a classically trained pianist. And Vinny turned around to Morris and said, oh, I, I didn't know you play. You played piano. To which Morris said rather wonderfully, oh, I didn't. I just got it for tonight so that we could hear you play. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a good line to use. That's pretty cool. That is a good line. Pretty- Pat, so Pat, let me ask you. Let me, let me ask you about talent because um, you have spent a lot of time around, you know, sporting greats. You've spent a lot of time around people in the music industry, and I think we as fans, um, you know, we we kind of we evaluate talent a little differently. You know, if someone scores forty goals for a team in a season, they're a great player. You know, if someone if someone has three top ten hits, they're a, they're, they're you know they're they're a hero. But, but what's it like to be around talent day in, day out and get a, a true appreciation of, of what talent really is? And, and how does that aspect, that view of talent, differ from, from how we judge from the stands? What a brilliant question. Um, <laughs> I look at it slightly differently. I love creativity. I adore creativity. And, and be that, I remember having a chat, excuse the name drop here, a friend of mine, Ken Loach, who's, who makes films, and he understood the importance of creativity. And talent's a different thing. Talent sometimes is, is just fame, sometimes. I know what you mean by talent, and, and I mean something that, but talent for a lot of people is just fame and notoriety. You can get three number one hits, and you never wrote a word of it. That's <laughs> just yeah. singing, you know? And it's the same. You could score 40 goals a season, but I'm more interested in Kevin De Bruyne who made 35 of them, you know. <laughs> I, I love the creativity right. side of it. Um, it had no effect ever, I don't think, on me uh, of those sort of talented people. What I like to see is how they reacted to it and how they dealt with it. And the ones that I felt most sorry for was the ones who just were not able to deal with it either by living for it and basically suffering when they hadn't got it anymore, be it the talent, be it the fame. All of the ones who basically behave like arses when they get it. And I have to add no sympathy for any of those people I met. But the people that you meet that have got that talent and that creativity, also a graciousness to understand that, you know, they've worked hard for it, but, you know, there are other things in life and other people are just as important if they have half the talent or none of the talent you have. And I mean, I spent a bit of time, fortunately, one day I had to spend an evening with Pelly and taking care of him all night. And the most wonderful, lovely, interested in you man you could just about ever meet. And considering the whole world would let you fall off their seat if you spent you know, two seconds in their company. Yeah. I loved that side of it. So always impressed by creativity and talent in that way. But I always divorced that completely from the human being or the individual. Yeah. So Roger would understand this. I would stand in the jungle when I was a kid and Jimmy Johnson would be trying to, and I'd go, wow, it's Jimmy Johnson. You'd be completely amazed and you would beam the things he would do. He did. And then I met him and I went, oh, hi, Jimmy. How you doing? Just normal. Just a bloke. Yeah. Just a guy. And he would have replied yeah. the same way. Exactly. And had he not, I would have thought less of him. 
Mm. Pat, it, it, feel, it feels to me that, that, that golf is, a, is a, a, a sort of expression of art and talent that um, can get quite muddled in a sense of who is a genius, who is the greatest, who is, you know, is consistency in art form. So someone like Rory McIlroy, who's been on the, this podcast before, he's a friend of the show, I mean, his talent is sublime. Um, and that final round at the Masters was something astonishing for, for a round. Wow. But at the same time, he's struggling to win majors as he was doing so well six, seven, eight years ago. What, what's your take on, on not just him, but just some golfers that you're seeing coming through now? I know you're a golf fan. Where, who are the, who are the uh, artists? Who are the journeymen with talent? And what does it take? Do you know, Roger and I have played together uh, a, a very good game of golf where we could throw in the <laughs> two players we were playing. We weren't bad footballers. Um, well, that was the classic line you gave to me uh, as we walked up to our putts. You said to me, I've never been in a four ball when I've been the third best player in the group. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I meant footballer. <laughs> footballer. The it's other two words and Kenny. So, um, no, it, the thing I've learned about golf over the years, and it's why I'm quite addicted to it and very addicted to it. I mean, I'll play two or three times a week if I can. I've getting had less time for a while, but I'm getting more time again now. It is, there's lots of brilliantly talented players, players out there. Giles, there are so many. There are just, I mean, I think Rory's special because he's got that, almost that safety thing about him where it's an imagination on top of it all that I think a lot of others haven't got. And that's why we loved Tiger. That's why we loved Rory because it's in Seve. That's the imagination. That's something different. Again, the metronomic ones that, you know, always go through the same thing. And it's great, but it doesn't light you up. But the thing about golf, and it's cliches in golf are there for a reason. The game's not one in anywhere else except there. That's, <laughs> That's right. The head. It's the only yeah. place you win a game of golf. That's the only place you play well. And is that not Rory's problem? I mean, you, you we, we can opinionate um, as nobodies that have never been in the, the cauldron of elite sport. You have. Um, is Rory got something wrong with his head? Um, no, I don't think yet because he still plays incredibly well. For what I can see, it's he'll, have tell, he'll tell you himself, I'm sure, it's those first rounds. They're a nightmare. Everybody else folds in the, the final round. Rory just doesn't seem to get started, does he? How many times has he had bordering on a stinker of a first round? Yeah. And he can claw it back and get close back. You take the four, see if you go through a lot of the majors that Rory's played in and take out his first round, everyone's first round, and have a look at the scores. I know. He's got a bunch of he's got a bunch of majors, a bunch of them, absolutely. So it is the head thing, but it is the hardest game there is. I don't think there is a harder game. It's psychologically to deal with. Football gets it now and again, only in a penalty shootout. You get yes. that moment in a penalty shootout. They get it every single shot, every That's single right. shot, time and That's time right. again for four rounds, well tad. And we're, even with a penalty in a penalty shootout, you, you've got inches, you've got six inches, you need to hit that ball. You know, you, if you get it and hit the side net and be a bit of power, oh, go in, you'll be all right. Or if keeper goes the wrong way around. You ain't got that in golf. You ain't got that with some of these shots. If you've got your the face of the club quarter of an inch out, your stuff, you're in the trees. And your your competition 
your whole major has gone a lot of the time. Yeah, you're right. So they lived with a level of pressure. I don't think anyone else does. You can make all sorts of mistakes in tennis. You can, you can have three bad games. They might. You yeah. can't have that in golf. <laughs> you can't happen. It's interesting. You're, you're yeah. probably at one or two average shots around you can get away with. But two bad shots over a couple of rounds, you're out. Um, so if you're not mentally attuned and right, for whatever the reasons are, um, you've no chance. So I, my admiration, and it always gets sneers from people who don't play golf because there's such a terrible image for the people who don't play golf. But I know maybe just behind boxers, they're the ones that I admire most for what they do. Well, boxers is completely different because that's just the bravery yeah. of that. So off the scale, my dad was a boxer, so <laughs> I do understand that you walk in the ring and you can get killed, you know. So you yeah. have to be careful with that. So those individual sports, if you're an individual within a, a, a group, it can be hard and it can be stressful. It can be pressured, especially if you kind of know you're the one that they're relying on for the creativity. Um, but you can make mistakes. Some of those sports, particularly golf, you can. Mm. Pat, uh, talking about penalties in Chelsea, um, your accolade... <laughs> that, you, that your accolade as the worst penalty ever yeah, is, yeah. is 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 being Off threatened. Chelsea, this... yeah. I'm not. I'm not having it. I'm not having it. I was. I was doing the commentary of the game the other day for the BBC for Five Live, and Georgina missed a penalty, and I'm just thinking that's almost exactly the same as mine. Oh, except it was up at the shed end, but I had this penalty, and uh, it, it was absolutely dreadful. It, it nearly reached the keeper, my penalty. It nearly did. I mean. And it was on target. <laughs> but it but was hang on. Did, did, neither awful. See, did, did neither of you see Lookman's penalty for Fulham against West Ham with the last kick of the game a couple of years ago? Is that the one the Penenka, he The Penenka yeah. that he just basically oh, locked gently happen. into the goalkeeper's arms. He just stood there and caught it. It's just literally yeah. oh. I mean, the, the, to be honest, I think it's fun. Um, and what you need to do in those situations, here's an important point from it, right? Um, I actually got fined by the manager for that penalty I missed. Not because I missed the penalty, not because it was rubbish, because it caught me laughing. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> we were 4-1 up. It was a minute to go. I was trying something different. It didn't work. And I, and because, although I sound earnest when I'm talking about other people, when I'm talking about myself, I'm, I think I find me ridiculous. So I can laugh at me. And I'm, I'm not trying to be stylish or anything like that. Yeah, I've had all that stuff thrown at me. I don't mind it either way. So, and if you take yourself too seriously, it's a very, very dark road yeah, to do that. Uh, so I don't do that. Never have done that, uh, you know, certainly with my, you know, my sport. So I actually... Pat, let's, 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 let's wrap up with the sponsor question. You know, this show is sponsored by Sports Digita. Fantastic um, presentation software for the world of sport. Um, I want to bring us back to the world of sport. We've talked a lot about Chelsea. Um, you... You lived a Chelsea that isn't the the supercharged Chelsea that it is today. Uh, you also played against teams that were glorious teams in their day, the Ipswiches, the Nottingham Forests, the Aston Villas. Uh, how do you live today the fact that the football world is being polarised between the haves and the have-nots and money can change the natural order of things? Moral principle, but also understand business. The, the businesses are like that, you know, for every person who would say to me, oh, Celtic are left behind, I'll say, well, what about Clyde? They were left behind by Celtic. 
you know, money is money when it goes into businesses. Um, and you get bigger, and because you get bigger, you have more money. Um, some people do it in some ways. Uh, certain clubs done it by having a phenomenal fan base for building it over years and doing it, I think, a way that we quite like. Others did it by getting on a huge wealthy owner who just piled in lots and lots of money. But these things don't always last forever. And I often t- told people that, that um, you know, Chelsea fans who particularly when it was you know, Abramovich had to face up to the sanctions, there was, oh my God, the, the club's going to die. It's going to be awful. And I'm going, eh? Are you joking? The eh, Number one, they're champions of Europe. Number two, they're world club champions. Number three, they've got a great team in place. Number four, they've got a ground that is worth a fortune. They have got a name within the, around the world that is going to be so sellable. They've got a guy who's selling it who doesn't want to make a profit, so there's no debt. And I'm just thinking, what are you worried about? It's going to be fine. And do you know what I mean by fine? It doesn't actually need to be like PSG, like Man City, whatever going forward. It may become the old Chelsea again. It's not the end of the world, is it? It's still a football club. It's still your football club. Now, anyone who follows it, because... It's a world club and we've got the best players and we win the Champions League. And if you don't follow it anymore because you're not, we're not getting that. Bye. <laughs> I'm not going to miss you. Because <laughs> that's just it. You know, there will be ups and downs. You think of Liverpool, classic example. Second division club of, within our lifetime. You know, yeah. you think about it. Second division club. Shanky never a club. The second, yeah. Exactly. And you have no God-given right. And it annoys me people who think you have a God-given right. If you're lucky to get wealthy ownership and money in, and if it's used well, and you have a golden era, then good luck for you. Yeah, good luck for you. I'm someone who stands back and looks at history. Go and look at the 1900s when football started. Who was winning leagues then? Where are they now? You never thought it was going to happen. But life in the world is like that. You have no God getting right. It's a sport. It's a business. It can go up and it can go down. It's upsetting if you're outside that bubble. But if you're inside that bubble, I'll tell you what, you don't have to know it can be pricked. Because if it does get pricked, it explodes and there's a long way to go down. So it, there is a discomfort. There are a number of discomforts. Uh, absolutely, I would underline that I feel about it. Um, it's a shame that the, the Champions League gets a bit dull because it's the same people a lot of the time. I don't fully understand. I do understand why it's supply and demand, but why certain players are now earning the ridiculous and being bought for 70, 80 million. And I'm thinking, you're not going to make 78 million quid's worth of difference, mate. <laughs> so the, the actual model's not brilliant. But that model, I think, works in the favour of the smaller clubs. Because if you are... Newcastle just now. Let's let's talk Newcastle. You're one, the, you're the newest kid in the block, okay? You've got all that money, and you're going to have to play so far over the odds. You, if you're going to buy a centre forward, you're going to have to spend right hundred million, okay? Is he twice as good as the player at fifty million? Is no. he going to do twice as much as you? you? No, he's not. So you're already benefiting to some degree those further slightly down those further down the line. So as long as the, the model's not perfect. I mean, as, as people have often said, you know, capitalism is the worst business model or cultural model possible, except for all the others. Is that, that Churchill? Yeah, yeah. So it's been paraphrasing Churchill. It was, yeah. yeah. And, and football's like that. I, I tend not to get 
too uptight about it. The one thing that we do get uptight about, and there is one group within that, is the people that go in and if they then destroy the club and it goes out of business, that's the ones. That's that's the bit. Yeah. When if and when that happens, that's the ones that are, that are unbelievably upsetting. Um, it's not happened to any of the very very big clubs yet, um, and I don't know if it ever will. Uh, but it certainly happened to a number of clubs lower down. Uh, well, Rangers chain. went un- Rangers went under part, but, but came back again allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't say that. Um, to some people's eyes, we'll they came out. back. <laughs> uh, some people's eyes, they came back. No, actually, I talk about that quite a lot, Roger, because okay. I do Celtic Rangers games for BBC Radio Five Live, which is a British and worldwide audience. We often get yeah. world service on, and someone will call me old firm, and I'll say, "Well, you've just except." tormented a nest of vipers there because yeah. that phrase would torment you've had people in Glasgow fighting you over that phrase and oh, the rest yeah. of the world's going what? Yeah. yeah. so what I do is I explain the whole concept to people that Celtic fans think Rangers don't exist anymore it's a new club that's right. but I'm very happy to explain it that's my job I'm, <laughs> I'm being a journalist I'm explaining that to you if people get annoyed with me at it I would really try hard to care, but fail me miserably. <laughs> Pat, Pat, on, on that, on that, we'll wrap up now. But one question I've got for you: very simple one, simple, short answer. Sliding doors moment, right? Tom Coakley, you, mm-hmm. me, and Eric Black. Mm-hmm. I think we would have won the league. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very, very painful and funny. You should say that. I've, that's what I've been writing about last week. Oh, really? I've written about that specific thing about the chance to turn something and, and get. And Terry Butcher was involved with this as well. I I would have been working with with every single every person I was working with. I would have loved the company of. Um, yeah, it's a sliding doors moment. It's one to this it's day. It's a sliding. It's oh one of my, my great regrets. Uh, for people that don't know, um, a local businessman came to myself and Pat and asked us to to run Motherwell um, properly um, and and in the way that would have allowed us a free hand to, let's say, express our creativity and and how football clubs should be run. A small team, but um, I think it's one of my major regrets. So um, it would have been great. It would have been good. It would have been great. It would have been great. Anyway, thank you, Pat, for doing this. A great hours chat. Fantastic, Pat. Really, really enjoyed it, as always. You're, it, you're goes a by, of a guest. it goes by so quickly. <laughs> it does. I love the does. fact that Roger's got a few questions and he's probably not going to buy the first chapter of the question. <laughs> oh, no, no, yeah, yeah. I've got loads. Uh, you, you would need a day, Pat. You would need a day. Uh, and Roger, what I might do, um, I might actually send you a rough copy of the second book when it's, you know, when I've just done the final touching up, but it's brilliant, brilliantly fun writing. I don't know if it's I'll, I'll definitely have a look at it. I'm sure if I can add anything in any way, I'll I'll do that because those I've, were f- years I've, we spent I've, together, Pat. I'm completely and utterly hooked with the writing. I've actually now got the third one. The, 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 I don't know if I mentioned to you, but the publisher wants me to do fiction. There. Um, they seem to think I'm not absolutely rubbish at writing. So I'm absolutely loving the writing now. So I'm going on it. Yeah, I'm just going to say, if you want any tips on fiction, then the three of us, we're the people to ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure if I can help you in any way you know I'm always here thanks Thank you, Pat sir. take Thank care of yourself have a good take care bye bye cheers bye bye fantastic what an absolutely tremendous tremendous gentleman he is I, I just I, I love talking to Pat Roger 
What did you think, Giles? That was your first experience. Well, I listened to the to the very very first episode just to get to get a sort of sense of it, and I wish all sports people could be like that. It's so refreshingly um, thought through. Everything he thinks about is 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 refreshing, and the sports world would be a better place if more people were like him. That's for sure. That is for sure. Now we've talked we've talked a lot about um, Pat's book. We should uh, we should let people know for those who haven't seen it. It's called The Accidental Footballer. Um, it's a cracking read, and you can pick it up. I guess, Rose, as they used to say, at all good bookshops and Woolworths. Well, he, he actually the old, has the old joke. made, <laughs> but he's actually made sure that it is at bookshops, um, so yeah. you will find it on the high street as well as Amazon and everything like that, etc. Tremendous stuff. Well, gents, uh, another enjoyable show flown by. I can't believe the time already. Um, I guess it's all left is to is to say goodbye and to thank our guest Pat Nevin once again. Uh, excellent entertainment as always. To thank my fellow groundsmen, Rog and Giles, and to thank you, of course, the audience. Without you, we'd be just idiots talking to ourselves, and that would be no fun whatsoever. If you don't follow us already, you'll find us on Twitter. Uh, just look for us at Entertained R. That's the word, A-R-E. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you'll find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. Um, you're not going to find me anymore after that fucker has bought it. Um, I- I'm off, guys. <laughs> not done <laughs> so, doing yet, uh, Give him a chance to catch the last irate tweets on the way out. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, people can follow me uh, uh, exclusively on this wonderful podcast. And uh, in that light, Grant, it's great to have you back. Um, I thought that was a superb show and the three of us um, at our best, I thought. So excellent to everybody. I hope everybody enjoyed it and um, see you very soon. As in the lake. (laughs) As in the lake.